Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Demartini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Welcome and happy holidays, everyone. My name is Ellen Stewart, and I am the pushy broad from the Bronx. I am subbing for Dr. Pat today, and I wish her the happiest of holidays and the best of New Year's. And this is my show, Recovery Recharged. I am thrilled today to talk to you about a wonderful guy who's going to be with us for the hour. His name is Edwin McCain. He is the illustrious singer-songwriter of I'll Be and I Could Not Ask For More. And he's going to talk pretty candidly with the Pushy Broad about his struggle to recovery and his 20-year, 20-plus year music career. I want you to know that um, our Bible up in the Bronx is the New York Times, and the New York Times has called him the great American romantic because of the songs that he's written for weddings over the years, and I see he's scoffing at what I'm saying, but he's a great guy, and I know we have a lot of things in common, and I want to be able to welcome him to you today and have an honest conversation at Recovery Recharged. So the Pushy Broad is really thrilled to welcome Edwin McCain. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Happy happy Christmas, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. How was your Christmas? Uh, I was like, you know, we kept it uh, just to my uh, immediate family, my wife, my kids, and uh, my uh, my. I, I grew up uh, the child of a pediatrician, so uh, we're acutely aware of of. Uh, viral spread so we were trying to keep it to a dull roar and and stay out of the mix as much as possible and mostly just in in, out of uh, respect and care for our frontline workers you know that the the my primary uh motive for following the strictest of guidelines is just to try to protect them and uh and my father's also 86 so i i've been We've been staying away from them, from him as well. And, you know, it was, it was good. It was a good, I mean, I, I, I'm sure a lot of people will will not admit this, but, you know, there's a whole lot less family drama. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. The, the relatives that you're supposed to really want to see but don't really want to see, I guess. That you it. don't ever see except for once a year. I mean, yeah. And then you talk about them the whole rest of the year. Uh, not really. That's even that's even kind of a point, too, I've made to my wife. I'm like, you know, it's interesting. We force ourselves to be around people that we don't ever see or talk about any other time. You know, it's a, it, uh, you know, if you weren't related to them, and I have a unique perspective because I'm adopted. So, you know, family gatherings for me and my adopted son are a different sort of uh, dynamic because I can teach him how to be thankful and grateful that he shares no genetic material with these idiots. And, 
and we just share that moment together and it's great it's a great thing I'm really glad it was peaceful for you, and I'm also glad that you're cognizant of what's going on, and and certainly with the first responders and wearing a mask and all of those things, because in some places around this country, people are not that conscious of it and not that cognizant of of taking heed, so I'm glad that your family is. Well, I've built, I've I've, I've been, you know, like a lot of people, I think I've I've found myself just uh, befuddled at how we've landed at this a binary moment and and how we've just separated into two into oil and water and these two polarized opposites and I keep thinking well how did this happen because I have my what actually my best friend is a polar opposite of me politically right a hundred percent polar opposite of me politically but we're devoted to each other we 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 it doesn't affect our friendship at all uh, you know, we just don't talk about that. And I, I often, I just wonder, I'm like, you know, how can it be that we have this much in common, except for he politically believes something so diametrically opposed to my foundational principles? Like, how, how, can, how have we gotten here? And so my best guess is after reading Sapiens and reading a book by Robert Sapolsky called Behave, yeah, my best guess is that somewhere, you know, 70,000 years ago, when we were in our little tribes and struggling to survive, there were two people in the tribe that were the most important people. And one of them was the warrior that was just crazy and single-minded and dumb enough to go out in the dark and face the snakes and spiders and all the stuff that were going to eat him and figure out a way to kill something and bring it back for us to eat. And then the other person that was really important was the shaman who sat there and created a sense of community and told the origin stories and found the little herbs in the, in the forest that healed people and, and was inclusive and empathetic. And those two people are our ancestors, are our ancestors. And which one do you identify with? I, I'm an empath. I mean, I, I'm probably, but, but again, you know, I'm, the, I'm a weird hybrid of those two things i'm a i'm an avid bow hunter uh and i i I occupy my space as an apex predator but i'm a i'm a bleeding heart liberal you know like i i feel like people need help even if they don't deserve it you know i and i even if you're not going to be thanked for it and i and I've, i've i've been um operating under that mantra forever you know i realize that there are people that need help and it doesn't matter why and that also makes you a good restorer right you can find broken things and make them new uh yeah and i'm a a habitual uh, restorer of old things and and all those things and i'm and i'm a lot like you know costanza because I gotta, I gotta. I hope, I sure hope the waitress likes me. You know, what I mean, because God <laughs> helps. You know, everybody that I come in contact with has to like me, or I'm just not, not gonna sleep tonight. You know, I used to be more like that. I, as I get older, I've and, and after treatment, I I realize that that's not necessarily a, a, a an achievable goal. <laughs> 
Well, I understand what you mean because I have the same things too. And I have family members that are also diametrically opposed to what I'm saying. And I'm thinking the same thing until Rachel Mad- Rachel Mano on MSNBC said one night, the difference, the difference here is, is that we're on earth one and they are simply on earth two. Right. So that's how I can reconcile that in many, many ways. But I think in many instances, and, and I, as, as I was reading a little bit more about you and learning a little bit about what we want to talk about today from my own point of view, that you and I have more things in common than I thought, which is really something because I am the pushy broad from the Bronx. And I have only been to one place in South Carolina, and that's Fort Mill. And I understand that many people in Fort Mill really think they're from Charlotte. So they're not exactly in Fort Mill. But that is the only place. But have you ever been up here? Have you been up in New York? Have you played gigs Uh, up here? Yeah. So I've been playing uh, in in the Northeast like for my whole career. And for some reason, uh, you know, Long Island and Manhattan and, and uh, uh, we've just done really well up there. And I, and I, I say this a lot. I mean, and, and New England, like Boston, Boston area has been crazy for us, like really great for us. And, and what I came to understand is that there is a culture of get it done that we share. Right. So there's a lot of people down here. The, the, the attitude is the same. You know, here's a problem. Well, it's just got to be fixed. And there's a lot of people that share that sort of uh, mentality. It's just the accent's different. You know, y'all talk funny. <laughs> I spent a lot of time working for a treatment center, as you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, and everybody, I learned so many different expressions uh, in the South. I also learned that, uh, bless her heart, wasn't exactly yeah, a compliment not, for the no, pushy broad from the Bronx. No, somebody down here says, bless your heart. That's just, you just caught the middle finger. That was yeah. Not, that's not, that's not true. <laughs> so I, actually I, had a, I actually had a realtor do that to my face here. In, in Greenville. And I was like, you know, I'm from here, right? I was like, you know, you're like, that's not, she goes, bless your heart. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. The other thing we have in common is that uh, I, I had mentioned to you before that we came here together because we have a mutual friend. So I just want to shout out to David, David Blackwell, for putting us together today because he's a great guy and we've done some great work together in recovery. And I also told you that I used to be married to a musician, so I understand that whole um, cycle of things. And and that's kind of where I fell, okay, in early recovery back in the 60s and 70s. And, and I know that when you get into treatment, they talk to you about a timeline of events and where you were and how it was for you. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about um, your teenage years and how things were for you and when you got started. Yeah. So I was actually, I, I review this. Uh, unfortunately, I review this a lot uh, because I have a 15 year old and a 14 year old. And so my, you know, my middle son who we were affectionately refer to as Dr. Evil uh, is ex- exhibits. It's like watching a, it's literally like watching a replay of my teenage years. Cause he has the same sort of, um, oppositional defiance that I had and, and that, that's, you know, that I can, I 
it's hard to criticize someone who you encoded half the the program you know i mean I, it's it's like ford you know coming out and criticizing one of their latest vehicles you know i made half of this and it sucks <laughs> and uh, but but here here's the thing is it is that it's offering me like this strange opportunity to go back and try to talk to my 15 year old self or my 14 year old self and say, look, you know, we didn't under, they didn't understand any of this stuff when I was your age. And now what you have to be aware of is really a, a matter of, of making him aware of patterns. Right. And, and so my, my path into addiction is tangled up in dyslexia and, and ADD. And, and, uh, and so I just had a really hard time in school, I, you know, and, and so I, I just, you know, get, you know, forget it. And he, he doesn't, he hates it too. And, and it, it, it's not, and what, what I came to realize and what he's learned very quickly is, is that, yeah, traditional schooling doesn't matter when it comes to educating yourself. You have the entire uh, sum total of human knowledge in your phone that you can access at any moment. Uh, and they know that, right? And their culture is, is now leapfrogging away from our values. And we, we crammed them in, into these 1800, the 1800s era idea that you put kids somewhere during the day so you can harvest crops. And now they're stuck. Now, I said all that um, to get to, you know, our, our teenage years as Gen Xers, uh, we were unsupervised. I had a fake ID by the time I was 14. You know, the Korean lady at the, at the gas station used to sell us gobs and gobs of beer. Um, and it, it was not, it was never a problem, right? You know, they just... right. Uh, they used yeah. to call us latchkey kids, latchkey yeah. kids. Yeah, latchkey kids. You know, we just uh, we just did whatever, and we figured it out on our own. Now, but we also had a culture like we had high school fraternities. Like when I was in high school, we we, we had a fraternity called Revelers, and you, you pledged it like you would a college fraternity, and it was a culture of drinking. So everybody and and, and Greenville in my city in in general has a reputation for being kind of boozy. And and it, it um, and no one no one thought anything of it. It was just normal. And so th this is the and this is the challenge. People that are the biggest indicator for kids uh, to have future alcohol problems is not that they drink and fall down and barf and cause problems that they're the ones like me who drink and I was the one that drove everybody around and I was the one that could talk to the cops and I was the one that had no problems at all because it metabolized differently for me it, I was like you do you remember the episode of of WKRP where they did the test with Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap where they're making them drink and Johnny Fever was just getting better like yes. every drink he just got better and better and Venus fell off the chair and passed out and and th so that, 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 you know, and, and uh, later on it, when I went to treatment at Talbot, um, Dr. Beatty uh, was quoting actually some of Dr. Anton's work that, that proves that when teenagers that start to drink and do and, and supposedly quote unquote handle their liquor, that's the biggest indicator of future alcoholism.
It's just that, you know, that, that you can handle it. And I was one of those kids. And of course, nobody knew that. Nobody knew that was part of the, um, the process. And so I just thought I was great at it. And it, it, took, it took decades for it to become a chronic issue for me. And I think a lot of people that, that are in our business uh, discover that as well, because, you know, you can maintain a level of functionality in the music industry that would have gotten you fired 15,000 times in the regular working world. I mean, no, no one, like I could show up in a Viking helmet and a tutu and everybody go, oh, it's going to be a great night tonight. You know, I mean, you get fired from your accounting job if you did that, but um well, yeah. that's, yeah, that's par for the course. And certainly, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Last week, I interviewed someone who was a, a teaching artist and talking about the fact that she was blitzed out of her face for years and years, realizing or thinking that you were more creative in your music because of that. And then right. realizing, right? So how is it for you? First of all, you've given some great information to parents because yeah. now that they, they know what to look for, uh, for their own kids. And I know you're giving your kids some of those messages. And then you said it took you a long time to realize that the I got this or I'm good at it really meant uh, maybe I'm not so good at this. And and what happened? I mean, how did it how did it escalate to the point where we would colloquially say I hit bottom? Well, you know, you have I had some some uh, what I thought were reasonable safeties in place. Like I said, you know, I'm not, I don't drink before shows. So I know I wouldn't drink during the day before shows. And, 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 and I, and I kept that, um, uh, rule pretty hard and fast all the way till the very end. But, but there, there's a big difference with being, you know, chronically hung over all the time. I mean, you know, you, you, if, and one of the things that, that happens, especially when you're a touring musician is that, every city that you go to you you establish a kind of a group of friends in that city and they look forward to seeing you once a year and it's their big night out and and if you're a people pleaser you you're, you can't say no i mean you're going to go out with all of these people that have been waiting to see you and lavish all this object referral on you and and you get to be the center of the attention and and you know for needy egocentric maniacs like us you know you can't it's just catnip you can't say no and so you so a decade will go by and you string together a decade of big nights out and and if you haven't developed an alcohol physical alcohol dependence then i don't know you know that 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 was the first thing that sort of occurred and and i didn't realize that i i would have this uh every time i got off tour I would get sick. I would get the flu and be down for weeks. And we always just sort of chalked it up to, oh, well, you know, you're going so hard that when you finally, you know, relax, your, you know, the, your, your uh, immune system gets depressed and you catch a flu. But I, I think now looking back on it, I was suffering from alcohol withdrawal. You know, I just wasn't, you know, and, 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 you know, and you didn't, I didn't know what that was. I just thought I had the flu and it would occur uh, regularly when I got off tour. And it, and it was almost like you could set your watch to it. And now I look back on it. I was like, dude, that wasn't the flu. That was the DTs. You know, that was just you, like you went four days without drink, drinking alcohol. And, uh, and, and 
you know, I, it just doesn't occur to you because that's the other part of this, uh, this journey is, uh, is how, how susceptible your frontal cortex is and how, how malleable it becomes to, uh, uh, misinformation and you know you become your own uh propaganda machine you know that frontal cortex becomes the the machine that tells you that all this aberrant behavior is okay you know or somehow part of you know i i used to invoke the you know the the Hemingway oh, you're say that. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Or, and and, and i love and i love you know a lot of people say you know i used to say too i you know i couldn't i couldn't write or be creative unless i had thrown myself down a hill and and had you know be somewhere in the picking myself up off the ground after you know damaging myself emotionally that i couldn't find something to write about and and i and i think about that now and it a lot of times people say, well, I, well, you know, you wrote, you wrote all this stuff under the influence. Nah, I didn't write under, right under the influence. I, I wrote all that stuff despite, <laughs> in spite of all that stuff, not because of all that stuff. Um, and, and but that's it, really important for people to get. Okay. Because I yeah. know Albie and, and, and I couldn't ask for more came out, you know, prior to your going into treatment. And I'm sure people think that all the time. Oh, well now he's going to stop being creative because he's, you know, he's become sober, but you, you've made a really good point there. It's in spite of the addiction and not because of it. And that's, yeah, and, but, and, and the creativity thing is interesting because I think, it, um, and, and, and there've been a lot of studies about creativity and, and aging and and uh you know of course people are much more creative in their 20s and early 30s and that's just been uh, uh, a documented truth but what i've found after the fact is that a lot of what shaped my my choice and my drive to be in music was was you know hand in hand with my desire to want to not be discovered as an alcoholic it's hard not, it's hard to find a needle in a stack of needles. You know, I, I gravitated towards a profession where it was accepted to behave in that way. I mean, I, and I'm not, and there's no way for anybody to say, like, I, I can, I can, I, I acknowledge alcoholism as a driver in my uh, choices that landed me where I was. So in, in those respects, I say to people all the time, it, you know, I don't look back on it in, in anger or disappointment in myself. I just, you know, that, that's where you employ the acceptance piece in all this. It, it just is, you know, it just is what happened. But, but uh, you know, coming out of the other side of it is that I've discovered that I'm, I'm more than, uh, than just a musician. And, and I've gotten involved entrepreneurially in a lot of different businesses and I do a lot of different things uh, other than music. So it isn't uh, my, prim my primary focus. It is something that I, I love as deeply as I ever loved it, but it is not my only source of creativity. So I think what happens for a lot of people is that you come out of it and you go, oh, wow, I'm interested in a lot of things. I do, you know, and I'm capable of doing a lot of things other than just uh, playing my guitar every day or writing songs every day. Um, that's just not who I am. You know, and that's, that's, 
that's just like saying that recovery, if we get to know it and embrace it, is much, much more than just not picking up a drink or a drug. Yeah, and I think one of the greatest things I ever heard, uh, and I, I don't remember, I used to have a bunch of speaker tapes and stuff I used to listen to. And, um, and I, I heard this guy say, you know, recovery will give you a life that takes you away from recovery. It will give you a life that's so rich that you have so many other things going on that you will you will find yourself drift you'll drift away from from you know from picking uh, up. Yeah, well, you, and, but you drift away from the meetings and all the sort of hyper focus of of walking around every day with recovery being the primary driver of every single thing you do. You know, and and I've gotten to a point where now. Um, like I, I'll have somebody at a party offer me a beer and, and I'll turn it down and, and I'll be, and I, I'll laugh because like, they don't even remember, you know, there are people that I know that don't even remember that 14 years ago I went to rehab because they didn't even notice that I was gone in the first place. Right. And I think that's kind of what you're, you're driving at with recovery. Um, I'm always available to people in crisis. I don't walk around with the big, scarlet a on my on my uh, chest um it, uh, i i tell people if i'm in a social setting and i bring up recovery i'm not looking for an attaboy i'm just reminding myself this is not for you you know because just because it's been 15 years i've heard all those stories about you know you I, how how did you relapse well i made eye contact with a bartender <laughs> I made eye contact with the bartender. He gave me the man nod and I ordered a shot. Like, so I, so I, I'm, I'm still on guard with it, but it's not a, um, it, my life now is so rich with other things. It's not a, it's not my daily priority. A while ago, when you first came back out of treatment, you wrote a great song that I, that I really connected with a long time ago called Sobriety. And I really like the premise of that song because it really comes across at a very different angle. So let, let me clear that one up. That song okay. is called Sober, and it was written by Maya Sharp. And, and you wrote the lyrics? Like, no. She oh. is one of my favorite. She's actually pretty much the only person I write songs with. But I heard the song, and she's not an alcoholic, right? She, this is a song from a, from a non-alcoholic woman's point of view, but I, I kind of, I called her and I was like, quit writing my life. I, and I said, you know, from an alcoholic, from, the, from the, from the mouth of an alcoholic, this song takes a completely different tack. Right. And this was just, this was a song because from the way she wrote it, she had showed up at a party late and everybody was drunk. And, and she said to her friend, you know what? Sorry, I'm a little sober for this. I'm a little sober to be here for this. And, and uh, from the alcoholics point of view, uh, re-entry into your life becomes that moment, right? Where I'm, I'm a little too sober to 
to stand here in this wreckage that I've caused and acknowledge it and own it. And, and so many marriages fail um, post rehab. And because, because we're, we, we do a lot of damage, you know, we just do a lot of, when we, and it's hard for us to own it. Um, and it is a process, you know, it, and, and obviously it, uh, I, you know, I still have to, I still own, um, my failures when I'm 14 years later and I still have to regularly own my failures from, from the, from those years. Um, and that's just, that's just truth. Yeah. But I guess in a way, uh, it steals my resolve to stay the course, but yeah, she, she wrote that song and I sang it and it became a different song. <laughs> it became a different song coming from, uh, my footsteps. Without a doubt to everybody that it's, that's in recovery, it becomes a different song because um, sometimes it's it's kind of like um, an appreciation for the fact that thank God right now. I mean, that's the way I see it. That's the way it, it, it hit me. And even though on some of the sites it says, well, lyrics by Edwin McCain, I now know better, so I apologize. No, no, right. no that, happens, that happens a lot. And Maya's incredibly generous in not being, uh, she, she, gets, she gets that we... Uh, we sort of find each other and songs have a life uh, depending on who's singing them, right? People bring their own perspective to songs and I, and you can, you know, go across history and, and he, hear remakes of songs where the artist brings their own experience to it and it changes it. So. So now that we're in 2020 and you have 14 years of sobriety, how has your music changed over the years? Do you think it's become more enriched, a, a little bit more introspective? That's a good question. I don't know that it has as much to do with sobriety as it has to do with age. I mean, I, I feel like uh, in my 20s, I, I wrote about these big global themes. You know, we we had that, the idea that we could write or say something that would be uh, universally heard and and make some big difference you know and I, I used to think in terms like that like yeah we're gonna change the world you know that kind of thing the the that somehow we could crack the code the magic combination of words would um would inspire people to be better or, or whatever uh, whatever i thought in my 20s uh, I say regularly that 50-year-old me would not be friends with 25-year-old me at all. So um, I'm glad that 25-year-old me got us, you know, didn't didn't die. Um, but but, uh, but our perspectives are, are uh, miles apart. I think now what I try to do is find the poetry and the tiny things, you know, the little things in life that are, um, that I think are overlooked why we overlook them most days. Uh, and I find, you know, I try to find that the happiness in these tiny little moments and then somehow mine the poetry out of it and, and, uh, uh, remind myself that, uh, we are blessed and, and we are given, um, more opportunities for happiness than, than sadness. It just is a choice. It becomes, what are you, what are you looking at? 
you know, what do you, what do you choose to focus on? Edwin, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, maybe you will honor us with a, a song or two. That would be great. I'd oh, sweet. All right, yeah, let me plug some stuff in here. All right, we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ambrosia. And I'm Alexa. And we, and we are the hosts of Inner Bloom Podcast. Podcast. A podcast about spirituality and intuitive development. Together, we utilize our intuitive gifts and our own personal life experiences to empower you to live an extraordinary life. Check us out and subscribe at innerbloompodcast.com. Imagine starting your week off with a teaching, a clearing, and an activation direct from the God consciousness. If you would like to feel more in charge of your week ahead, then I personally invite you to join me, Tracy L. Clark, for our monthly Soul Sunday non-denominational service at 11 a.m. Eastern time online or in person. All donations for this event go to the TLC Initiative Fund to help those in need. Sign up now at tracylclark.com and let's connect together in the glory realm. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Do you drive yourself crazy trying to make important decisions? And when you finally do, then you start second-guessing yourself. Would you like to know why you do this and how to change it? You can. When you take time to go inward, you'll find a wisdom that resides in the body. Begin by quieting your mind and sending your awareness into your body. Notice where there may be a discomfort. Ask it what it wants you to know. Listen carefully. It will reveal what it is about making this decision which holds you back. You can keep asking for information until you reach the deep core value of what keeps you from comfortably making a decision and sticking with it. Awareness is the first step toward making change. I'm Carrie Kadambi, and I'd love for you to join me on Transformation Talk Radio for my show, A Spirited Exchange. For more information about me, visit my website, thedivineguidancegift.com. Are you ready to get big and live your life out loud? Tune in to Get Big Out Loud Radio, exploring life through the lens of curiosity and compassion with me, Carrie Knudsen, joining Dr. Pat live every second Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. I will offer ideas to transform what you are thinking into conscious action. If you want to get big and live your life out loud, visit me at KnudsenSpeaks.com. I don't think there's any greater gift, man. That's just beautiful. Really beautiful. So you've reminded me over the years of this 1958 black and white TV show called Have Gun, Will Travel. Okay. I don't know if you remember any of this, but Have Gun, Will Travel is a, is a, a hired gun. Okay. So you yeah. take his gun and you go all over the place. You are very much the Have Guitar, Will Travel guy. I say it all the time. Yeah. It's uh, 300 magic. shows a year. Yeah. It's a magic carpet. Uh, for sure. I tell, I tell people all the time, I, you know, this guitar, 
has taken me to the deck of an aircraft carrier uh, off the coast of Korea and to Djibouti, Africa, and to all over all over Asia and Europe, and and it's crazy. I mean, it's great. And but I think more than anything, and what I've told my kids is like, before you leave here, I don't care what you do, you're going to learn how to play 20 songs on acoustic guitar and be able to play them proficiently because at the very least you can walk into a party and make some friends, you know, the, at the very least you can make friends with people. And, and in a, and in a pinch, you can catch a job at a restaurant and make a hundred bucks if you need to, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really, it was the ultimate, fallback really for me i mean i, I joke around um the, I, the first actual paying gig i got i think i was i was busking out in front of this mexican restaurant and the manager came out and said hey can you come up here and play on the deck two nights a week and i'll pay you 75 bucks and a meal and i dropped out of college the next day i was like i'm rich you know i mean couldn't believe my fortune my good fortune and uh you know it, it's true. If you can play a little bit, you, you can find a gig. I've got to ask you one question about this because I haven't found it in anything online, but you never know. Okay. Can you play that guitar left-handed and right-handed? No, just, no? just left, just left-handed. I mean, just regular, just right. Just, just, straight just that way. Okay. Yeah. Because so I'm left-handed some- too. Right. Some people, some people, well, I think it's probably a, a camera trick. I'm, I'm right-handed. So oh. this, is a, this is a camera trick thing. I think with the way my camera's facing, um, but uh, um, I, I, I've had right or left-handed guitar players that play upside down and backwards so that the low strings are on the bottom and, and their chord voicings are way more interesting that way. Um, and the Didn't way Hendrix that they play like that, did Hendrix, Hendrix play like that? No, he played, he flipped it around and restrung it. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the upside down and backwards guy, I had one guy used to play with me, a guy named Steve Mitchell and he was upside down and backwards and his choice, his choices were interesting. He was an interesting guitar player. Really, really cool. So now that you are not this traveling troubadour, this have guitar will travel because of the past year, how has that affected your life? What's going on? Well, this is the interesting part about it. So for, so this is, this will be year 31 of being a musician. And for the last couple of years, I've been secretly harboring this, I, this desire to take a year off. And then the pandemic showed up and said, okay, look, okay, fathead, how do you like it? There you go. Take your year off, whether you like it or not. But, but for the 20 years prior to this, I've always had some kind of side hustle going on. Right. So I, and my wife is, you know, I've been, she, she gives me a hard time. She's like, she, I mean, starting in 1997, when, when I was on VH1 every day, I used to tell her, look, this isn't probably going to last for another 18 months. And I'm going to have to find something else to do. Like, and I used to give her that speech every year and she, she gives me her, she's like, you're going to give me that speech about how this is only going to last another 18 months. And um, so I've always had some other thing I was doing. And uh, so a few years ago, I started a land clearing company, a, a grading company called Nomad Land Management. And over the last few years, it's grown to a, a, 
a comparable uh, uh, degree to my music career. And so when all this happened, I just pivoted and I've been running an excavator uh, or running a forestry mulcher or doing land clearing or driving an 18 wheeler or whatever it is that the business requires. Uh, uh, so, so it hasn't really been weird for me, but I know a lot of musicians that are, that were only doing music that are just sitting here going, Oh, what are we going to do? Um, but a lot of people have gone to this virtual idea of, like, you know, like I've been playing the online shows uh, and, and a lot of people have found a, a great success in content creation. And, and uh, you know, it, I think it's just a matter of how, you, that's the thing about musicians. They always figure out a way, right? That we're the, we're the guys that, that figure out how to make it work somehow. Um, and I think it's it's brought out the best in some people, and I think it's probably brought out the worst in others. And uh, it just depends on which side of that uh, uh, fall line you 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 land on, right? Is it is this just a challenge that needs to be overcome, or is this uh, something that's happened to me? I think it just depends on how you approach it. Uh, so I, I've been honestly, I've been enjoying the time at home. <laughs> I really have. So now it's the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021 for yourselves, for yourself, any personal goals, any, uh, anything you want to share with us or leave us a message for people that want to follow in your footsteps when it comes to recovery or your own personal plans? I think, I think the, the recovery thing, um, I, I know for me, I knew when it was, I knew when it was out of control and it took me a long time from the time that I knew it was out of control till I did something about it was about 10 years, right? I, I tried all the different modes of, well, maybe I can wear it like a cape. You know, maybe I can just like strap this identity on and, um, and obviously that was, that's, that's just error thinking. Uh, the sooner you can approach recovery, the better. Um, my, my experience has been that there's no, you know, you don't have to, you know, there's an old saying is that rock bottom is when you quit digging. You know, you can, bottom can be right now. You just got to put the shovel up and quit digging. You don't, it doesn't have to be uh, this smoking crater that you have to climb out of. Um, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people I've helped along the way, like, look, you know, why do you want to take it all the way to the, to the judicial system? Like, let's get out now and you can cheat the trap. I mean, you know, this is a chronic issue. I know it's a chronic issue. Why do you want it to be, you know, why do you want the judge to find out too? Right? Like, let's just skip this. Let's skip that part of the story. And you, and you kind of beat the system, you know, and as alcoholics, I've found that the idea of cheating the system somehow connects, you know what I mean? Like if I can talk to somebody like, if you really want to cheat, if you really want to just stick it to the man is that you don't have to have, uh, you know, chronic liver failure and, and have to be resuscitated in an ER. Let's get out now. 
So that's what I would say. I would say if you're if you're listening to this and you've been, you know, if you've if you've had those uh, those internal conversations where you know this is a problem, well, you want to beat this whole system. You want to win the game without having to go all the way to the pile of rubble and walk back. Just get off on the next exit, and whatever that looks like is a a, a coach, a, a sobriety coach, uh, rehab if that works for you. Um, there are a lot of harm reduction models that are out there. Um, this idea that there is only one way to good, long-lasting recovery is, is I think that myth has been exploded. The data, the data shows that probably 52% of people that, that recover are capable of doing it on their own by uh, standing up and stopping these behaviors. Now, like me, if you find out that you, with the, despite my best efforts, I could not stop. And it required assistance from a treatment center like Talbot in Atlanta, or uh, the Meadows is another great uh, group. Um, it, you know, for me, it required a, a, a 90, well, well, almost 120 day intervention where I went to residential treatment and learned how to re, how to, uh, uh, re-enter my life. Uh, and, and, and for, for, for a lot of people, that's the answer, but it's not the only answer. There's a lot of ways to do this. And, but the, the, the big tragedy would be to do nothing to carry on in, in uh, pathological, uh, uh, disease thinking, um, that, uh, that's the, only, I think the only mistake that you can make in the process of recovery. And, and like a lot of people, I relapsed, um, but relapse is part of it too. It's not a failure. It's just something you have to move on to the next right thing and, um, and carry on. Uh, but I, I see the other thing I would say too, is that if, if there's breath, there's hope. I've seen turnarounds from people who had lost their ability to speak the English language, who, who you would see and be convinced that they had permanent and irreversible brain damage. And I've seen people recover all the way back to their lives as successful surgeons. You know, I mean, amazing, amazing uh, feats of recovery. So as long as somebody's still alive, there's, they have the capability to recover. Two really big messages. First of all, like you said, where there's breath, there's hope. And that's that's the thing I tell my clients all the time. If you're alive, there's hope. That's it. There's hope. That's it. I mean, and, and there is no, and I, and listen, there, 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 one of the things that's, I had to come to terms with is that there, there, there are going to be some relationships that I'll never be able to repair. Um, and so at that point, I have to make a living amends and, uh, and, and do the best I can moving forward. Uh, and acceptance is part of that. You just have to accept those truths. You're a living example that uh, treatment works, even though I know you've worked hard at it and you've come a long way and, and people want to hear that. They want to see it. It's a, it's a great thing. I, I so appreciate you letting us know and, and sharing what we would call in the rooms, your experience, your strength and your hope. Yeah. I, I, I'd say this too. Um, I, I speak openly about it and I always accept opportunities to talk in, in, in these 
in these settings because the ongoing stigma that occurs, right? Just this, like I talk about it openly in my shows and I can feel the crowd pull back and I always just reassure them like, look, it's not contagious. You're, you know, trust, trust me here. Like I, <laughs> you know, everybody pulls back on this idea and that's one of the things we got to push against. And I, I, I may be a little obnoxious with the, how much I talk about it, but it, mostly because I'm trying to normalize this idea that we can struggle with uh, emotional and mental health and not be permanently broken, right? In the, in the eyes of our friends and family, because it's not true. It's just not true. And and everybody's so terrified of mental health issues that, that we don't do anything about them and it keeps people from getting help. And, uh, and we got to break those walls down. Because we do recover. We do. That's what it's all about, man. So I, you know, I, I was refraining from the entire time to ask you to play your most popular song and uh, <laughs> on my show, but we've just got about two minutes here and I'd love you to play us out. Would you just, um, I thank you so much. Happy and healthy new year to you and your family. Please stay safe and healthy and do the things you want to do in 2021, man. Thanks for That's coming it. on the Pushy Broad. 